0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence, the icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOmis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences, Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 7th, 2015. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Andrea Marzi talks with Suzanne Bard about a potential new vaccine against Ebola. And David Grimm is here with some of our latest online news stories.
1: Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aas.org.
0: Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on how one might get all the benefits of gastric bypass surgery without actually having to go under the knife. The way weight loss surgery works seems simple. Having less stomach makes you less hungry. But scientists have known for a while now that there is more to it than that. People who have had these surgeries see big changes in their metabolism And in some cases, if they have diabetes, it goes away. So, Dave, now it's time for you to talk about how our amazing buggy friends may play a role.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, Sarah, we talk a lot about our microbiome in this podcast, a lot about all these microbes that live in our body and all the amazing things they seem to do from helping us digest foods to maybe even influencing the way we think in some pretty extreme studies. And there's been the speculation that these bugs really do play a role in our body weight. There were some studies in the past that suggested that these types of surgeries might work in part because they change the constitution of these microbes in our guts, and it's that change that actually causes us to lose weight, not necessarily these surgeries, which in some cases staple off parts of the stomach or reroute the intestines to make us eat less.
0: For this study, the researchers looked at humans. Past studies have been in mice. And they looked at women who had reduction surgeries about nine years ago. What did they find out about their gut microbes?
1: Well, they looked at the DNA of their microbes, and they found that the composition of the microbes of the women that had had these types of surgeries were much different than very similar women who had not had these types of surgeries. And that means that even nine years after the surgery, whatever the surgery had done to the composition of the microbiome in the gut had remain fairly stable.
0: They also introduced these subjects' gut microbiota into naive mice. And this is a nice way of saying fecal transplant. Right. Uh, What were the results of those experiments?
1: Well, typically when you do this, the mice gain weight. But what the researchers found is that when they transferred microbes from the women that had had these surgeries, the mice gained a lot less weight than they should have. And in fact, they gained a lot less weight than the mice that had received microbes from women who had not had these surgeries.
0: Do these results mean that changing our gut flora could have the same effect as these surgeries? Do they have that pinned down yet?
1: Well, scientists hope that's the case because, as you can imagine, these surgeries are really extreme. They can be dangerous. And what if you could just give somebody some microbes instead or do a fecal transplant? Um, It's still better than gastric bypass. But the jury's really still out. The researchers need to do more work to figure out just what it is about these microbes that seem to help us lose weight.
0: Next up, we have a story on carbon suckers. Various geoengineering strategies have been proposed to reduce climate change, from planting forests to seeding the oceans with iron to increase plankton growth. One such technology that has been recommended by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change aims to take carbon dioxide directly out of the air. How likely is this to work, Dave?
1: Well, not as likely as we thought. There's a bunch of different ways to do this, but one idea is essentially putting machines all over the planet. Some of these machines would be the size of a sports stadium you're talking about maybe 5,000 of these things all over the planet, and they would essentially suck carbon dioxide from the air. Now, that sounds like that would be really powerful because carbon dioxide is one of the major causes of global warming. And essentially, if we could get rid of it, then we wouldn't have a lot of the climate change problems that we're facing and that we're going to face in the future. But this new study via computer simulation found that if researchers instituted this strategy and, in fact, removed a whopping five gigatons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is about half the amount of CO2 that's now pumped into the atmosphere each year via man-made sources, it would have a fairly negligible effect. This study looked
0: beyond just the changes in temperature that come with climate change. They also looked at ocean acidification. How much difference was this technology predicted to make there?
1: Well, ocean acidification is something we're really worried about because of the impact on sea life, dissolving marine shells, destroying coral, really having these severe impacts on ocean ecosystems. But what the researchers found is that this technology, this carbon 2nd technology, had a very negligible effect. Uh, without the technology, the surface pH becomes about 0.75 units more acidic by 2200, With the technology, it still becomes about 0.7 units more acidic, which means not a big change.
0: Do the researchers have any idea why this technology is going to make such a negligible difference on CO2? Well,
1: it turns out a lot of the CO2 is actually not in the sky, but it's locked in the deep ocean. And that takes thousands of years for that CO2 to return to the surface. So if you've got all the CO2 trapped, you're not necessarily getting rid of it by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And in fact, the authors say that we can actually be a lot more effective in mitigating the impact of climate change by reducing carbon emissions now rather than trying to suck CO2 from the atmosphere later.
0: Lastly, we have a story on sexist HVAC systems. I'm going to start with saying it is really warm in this room right now and always, but that's because it's insulated for sound. But apparently most women sitting at desks in the corporate world are chilly. Why, Dave? Why are so many of us forced to wear office sweaters?
1: <laughs> well, you should blame a man named Poyle O. Funger. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but he was a Danish scientist who in the 1960s developed a model that's still used in many office buildings today. And essentially what the model says is that the most comfortable office temperature is 21 degrees Celsius or about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, a lot of women out there probably feel that's cold to them. And the reason maybe is because Funger's model was actually based on a 40-year-old man wearing a three-piece suit. So he's obviously not going to get as cold as a lot of office workers today, especially those that wear less clothing.
0: But getting to the sexism part, is there actually a difference between women and men when it comes to office temperature?
1: Well, it's not just that men and women tend to wear different types of clothes. Men actually typically have faster metabolisms than women, which makes them generate more heat, which means they are less likely to get cold. Women, on the other hand, have much stronger what are called vasoconstrictive reactions, which means that when they get cold, their blood vessels close faster, which increases their sensitivity to chilly temperatures.
0: Obviously, this problem can be solved with more science or updated (laughs) measurements. What's the new normal temperature-wise, and how do they figure it out?
1: Well, in this new study, the researchers tried to come up with a good, what they call thermo-neutral zone, which involved looking at men and women, looking at their heat production, trying to figure out what an optimal temperature would be. And the temperature they come up with is 24 degrees Celsius, which is about 75 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: That is toasty. I do like this <laughs> because it saves some energy, you know, keeping an office building warmer. Is that going to Reduce carbon emissions?
1: Well, that's what the researchers say. It's not just about making people more comfortable. It also has to do with the fact that office buildings account for about 30% of global carbon dioxide emissions, speaking of CO2 emissions. And so their idea is that this won't just make you more comfortable in your office, but it'll actually be good for the planet.
0: And will this become a trend in offices? Will some people get to put away their office sweaters while others have to don office shorts?
1: Remains to be seen.
0: Okay. What else is on the site this week,
1: Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about why tapeworms may be good for your brain. (laughs) Also, a story about wasps creating zombie spiders. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why a paper on genetically engineered golden rice was retracted. Also, a story about why two California schools are fighting over Alzheimer's data. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org.
2: The most recent Ebola outbreak in West Africa, which peaked in the fall of 2014, had an enormous human toll. The highly transmittable virus infected over 27,000 people and took the lives of more than 11,000. In response, vaccine development went into overdrive. NIH virologist Andrea Marzi and her colleagues have tested a candidate vaccine in animals that shows promising results. I'm Suzanne Bard.
3: The outbreak started probably already at the end of 2013 and has spread from Guinea into the neighboring countries, Sierra Leone and Liberia throughout 2014. The need for vaccines really was underlined. We knew when the outbreak happened that it could be a really bad situation because unlike in previous outbreaks, West Africa is very populated. People move around a lot. And so it was no surprise that the virus spread from the rural area into the capitals of those three countries. So it's a real big problem and highlights the need for vaccines. And thankfully, after the peak of the outbreak last year, a lot of the clinical trials have been accelerated and we see the first data being published.
2: And what's the current status of the outbreak, Andrea?
3: The outbreak is winding down. It is not over yet. There are still cases in Guinea and in Sierra Leone. In the case of Liberia, the country was declared Ebola-free in May, but then had a few cases in July. But since then, nothing has popped up there again.
2: Andrea, how did you figure out what to put into this vaccine?
3: There was one particular part of Ebola virus identified early on that was used as the antigen for this vaccine, and it is the glycoprotein of the virus that is presented to a cell and that is the thing that we put into the vaccine. A glycoprotein is a protein that binds to a receptor and allows the virus to infect a cell and spread then the infection from there throughout your system.
2: And how does the vaccine work, Andrea?
3: We don't really know for sure the mechanism of action for this vaccine, but we have evidence from non-human primate studies that the vaccine seems to trigger a very potent antibody response that seem to correlate with protection. Interesting.
2: So you tested the vaccine and found that it was most effective at knocking out Ebola in macaques when given a certain number of days before infection. Can you explain that?
3: That is correct. So we wanted to know in case this vaccine would be available for people who get deployed there, how much time is needed between vaccination and exposure to Ebola virus when they arrive, for example, in West Africa. So we vaccinated macaques either seven days, 14 days, 21 days, or 28 days prior to infection with Ebola, and all macaques lived through the infection, did not get sick. We also vaccinated three macaques only three days before Ebola virus infection, and in that group, two of the animals survived, one needed to be euthanized. So, that really shows how effective and how rapidly effective a single dose of this VSV Ebola virus vaccine is.
2: Now, monkeys aren't people, but does this give us any idea how far in advance of exposure someone could be vaccinated and how long the vaccine might
3: protect them for? We don't really know. So far, we don't know what the efficacy is in humans. I mean, there has been the paper that was published by The Lancet this past week, and they think 10 days is the minimum time they need from vaccination until protection. But this is really just a preliminary report. And you see already that it's similar to what we see in the macaques, but of course, not exactly the same. Those are different species, humans versus macaques, but it seems to be similar.
2: So your paper and the Lancet paper seem to be good news in the bigger picture of controlling Ebola. Where do you think things are heading now?
3: They are great news. And to be honest, I think we are as close to having an Ebola virus vaccine approved as we have ever been. Of course, it's still not approved. So it's not licensed. The FDA does not allow to use it. But with this outbreak not being completely over yet, there is still the need for a vaccine. So I don't know when, of course, it will happen, but there are other vaccines around, the adenovirus-based vaccines that are also in clinical trials that showed promising preliminary results. So there is definitely work going towards an approved and licensed vaccine soon, but we are not there yet.
2: You mentioned adenoviruses and also the Lancet paper. Why might it be a good idea to have various
3: vaccines available? That is a good idea because those platforms that we use for our vaccines, the VSV on one hand and the adenovirus on the other hand, are different. So the VSV is a life attenuated vaccine, which means it's still a replicating virus. And it works quickly where the adenovirus is safer in that regard. It's non-replicating, but we don't know how quickly it works. So if you have laboratory workers or, you know, just doctors without borders that have time to vaccinate their people, for example, not for an outbreak that they have to deploy in a week or two or three, but maybe they're just staff that are on hold in case something happens, like even months out then you could deploy a vaccine that doesn't work necessarily as quickly but still is as efficacious. So I think it's good to have different approaches. Plus, we do not know for both vaccines actually how long the protection will last. So that is also a point that need to be addressed in experimental settings first. And then, of course, now, We can go and test all those humans that have been vaccinated in the phase one clinical trial, but also in West Africa in the phase two and three clinical trials and look for their immune responses, follow up a year later, two years later, do they still have antibodies? Would they still protect it? What's going on there? But at this time, it's not known. So we really need to have as many options as we can have.
2: So what's the next step here with this particular vaccine, getting it to trial in humans and eventually licensing?
3: So we as the scientists who do the basic research on the vaccine, we are actually not involved in this process at all. So Merck has to apply for a license to get it through the FDA for approval, and then it could be available for human use.
2: Thanks so much for speaking with me, Andrea. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Andrea Marzi and her colleagues report on the success of an Ebola vaccine in primates. This week in Science Express.
0: And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and publisher AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.